1: Not long ago, the only resource for uncovering our familial pasts was to consult libraries and archives, combing old newspapers for birth announcements and obituaries. These days, many people are turning to websites like Ancestry and 23andMe, taking DNA tests to learn more about their ancestors and where they came from, often discovering long-buried secrets and long-lost relatives in the process. But for some, the answers to these questions exist not in archives or in their DNA but within a suitcase. When writer Danielle Geller's estranged mother passed away, she left behind just eight suitcases of belongings, cataloging her wayward spirit, moving between boyfriends, states, and jobs, at times experiencing homelessness. In her debut memoir, Dog Flowers, Geller, trained as an archivist, consolidates the most important artifacts from the collection, never before seen photographs, documents, letters, and diaries, piecing together a portrait of the mother she grew up without and reconnecting with her Navajo heritage in the process. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down to chat with Danielle Geller about her striking family memoir, Dog Flowers, available now from One World. Danielle, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, Thanks for having me. So Dog Flowers begins with the unexpected passing of your mother, a woman from whom you were estranged. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom as you knew her growing up and her presence in your and your sister's lives?
0: Yeah. So we lived with my mom or my mom lived with us until I was about four years old. And then after that point, um, I was with my dad and some of his girlfriends for a little while. And then my grandma adopted me and my sister when I was five. I was in kindergarten. It was like the end of my kindergarten year. Um, And at that point, you know, my mom would come visit us for holidays and for like birthdays um, or we'd like go and see her at work. Uh, I remember her being a waitress at a bagel shop and we would go to the bagel shop and I'd get like a chocolate chip bagel. And (laughs) my sister would get like, I forget what my sister got. um, And we'd just like sit in the restaurant and like eat our bagels and like hang out with our mom. But my memories of her when I was younger like, those times that we were together, is that she was just really fun, like, she was funny, and she was always laughing, and, you know, like, when we weren't with her, we wanted to be with her, um, and when it was time for her to leave, it was always this, like, heartbreaking, like, don't leave, stay, like, like, sleep on the couch, like, you know, like, not wanting that time to be over, Um, and so, like, those are my memories of my mother. But then layered on top of that was this narrative that especially came from my grandma, who was my my dad's mom, um, where, you know, our mom was just boy crazy, and she drank too much, and she was lazy, and she didn't want to work, and she lived off her boyfriends. And, um, you know, like, and I, and I would have, I have these memories of, like, these crazy inappropriate stories that she would tell us about like the guys that my mom was sleeping with and like her cheating on my dad and finding her naked. And it's like, we were just kids, you know, but, um, there was, there was very little filter when it came to the kinds of conversations that my grandma and my dad would have with, with us when we are growing up. And so I had like these memories of my mom and who she was and how fun she was and how much we loved her. But then there was also like this weight of, of who we were told that she was. Um, and anytime we did something that was wrong or that they didn't agree with, um, it would always be like, well, you're just like your mother or like you get that from your mom. And so just like over the years, like anything that felt like it didn't fit into who they wanted us to be, it's like, oh, well, that, 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 that came from your mother."
1: So early on in the memoir, you you describe the eight suitcases of belongings that your mother left behind. So I'm curious, from the portrait that you're giving us of your mother, what what are some of the things that you found in her suitcases? And how did you use these objects as evidence to piece together a portrait of a life that you hadn't known through your own young experiences with your mother, and then also your grandmother's version of the story?
0: yeah. Well, I mean, um, there were a lot of things in those suitcases. A lot of them were clothes. Some of them were funny. You know, like, I remember there was this one, like, it was this crushed turquoise green blue velour shirt that had, like, this white fringe in this V-shape across the chest. (laughs) It It was very 80s. It was very, like, 80s western um my mom was like really into country music, which I think is like a common thing <laughs> where where she's from. Um and just like knowing what my my aunties listen to uh and the the music that's always playing on the the Navajo radio station, KTNN. Um but yeah, so some of it was just like uh you know, looking into her style, the things that I recognized, the things that I didn't like. And then there were a lot of photographs. Um and I think the, the photographs were, were some of the places where I could really see a little bit into her life. Um, and some of them I had copies of, you know, ones of, and some of them I didn't. And she had given me a big, when she'd come to visit us um, when I was in the eighth grade, she had given us a big stack of photos from her childhood that she, that she had had. But we only got some of them. We didn't get all of the photographs from her childhood. And so... You know, there were like negative packages of photos in there where I was suddenly seeing these pictures from childhood that I had never seen before and seeing into especially like her life with my dad when the two of them were, were raising me and my sister. Um, but the, another section or a big number of the photographs were ones that she'd taken when she was like hanging out in bars with her friends. And, and so there are a lot of people that I didn't recognize. And it, at first it felt like a confirmation of the things that my grandmother had told me that like my mom was boy crazy. You know, she's like sitting in the lap of like guys I don't recognize and um, like having a really good time in a bar. Um, and, and it was like, Oh, so there's a part of you when, or a part of me at least um, that's like, so you didn't want to be in my life. You didn't want to, like, take care of me and my sister or, like, see us because you wanted to be out partying in bars all the time is, it, like, what that initial, like, feeling of rejection is and abandonment, um, which, is, which is something that, like, I've come to learn uh, children of alcoholics and adult children of alcoholics, like, we, we struggle constantly with those feelings of abandonment. Um, and, and some, it's hard to look past that, like initial sharp feeling of hurt, like that, that feeling that in, because you internalize it and you turn it around, you're like, what about me? Like, wasn't good enough? Like, why didn't she want to be in my life? Um, but when, when you start pushing past that, and when I, when I like moved past some of those, those photos, And I started digging into her letters between her and her family and reading through her diaries. And the diaries were just kept in these appointment books. So there weren't very many lines. There weren't many, um, there wasn't a lot of space or time for her to really elaborate what was going on every day. But um, that's when I started to realize, you know, like, oh, man, like in the 90s, when I was just a kid, like running around with my friends in the grass, like, She lost her mom. She lost her dad. She lost her brother. Um, She was like a woman who was grieving and surrounded by people who likely weren't very supportive. Like she was constantly taking care of other people. Um, And and there was just a lot going in her life that I didn't have access to or understand. And once I did, um, I started to realize that you know, like she didn't have the capacity to be there in the way that she she needed or wanted to. And it's likely that she felt like it was better for her to stay away and that my grandma was taking care of us and maybe she just shouldn't
1: interfere. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring up the, the photographs, um, the documents and letters, the excerpts from your mother's diary, because these are elements of the text that are not just written about but are fully incorporated into dog Mm. flowers. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is a photolingual memoir. And if you could talk just a little bit more about the ways that your book intersects with archival research and preservation.
0: Yeah. Um, so photolingual was something that, uh, one of, uh, the, she was an editorial assistant, um, when I was, when I had just turned in my manuscript and she was like writing the, the jacket copy and like came up with this, I was like, Oh man, I love that. (laughs) I love that word. And, or like that, that, um, combination of words. And, and I like, I didn't really think about like why too much. Um, but like now, like thinking about what about photo, photolingual memoir, do I really connect with or like feel like represents this book? Um, I think that photographs have their own language and that language isn't the spoken or the written word that language is is light and color and like these visual qualities that we still like our brains still like piece into a narrative um and and there's a there are a lot of writers that talk about, that use the language of photography to talk about writing. Um, it's it's partly like why we talk about like framing. Um, but but it's not even, you know, thinking about like those those technical terms about the way uh, we talk about photography and the way that a a photograph is like staged or framed or the aperture or the you know the focus mm-hmm. or all of all of those things. It really is about um, there were you know, there were a couple of photographs that my mother took, uh, and one of them I included. And it's just a picture of a shadow in the dirt. And and it's not accidental. You know, like I've, I've taken photographs like that before. And it's one of those moments where I really recognized something of myself in my mother that was hard to put into words. it And it was and and throughout the book, I was encountering it. It was trying to look at the world the way that she was looking at it, so that I could really understand or try to understand the decision, the, the decisions that she made and why she made them, and strip myself out of the equation as much as I could. Um, and I think that intersects too with uh, you know the the way that archives and research and preservation, like those things enter into the book. Um, I got a master's in library and information science and I was focusing in archival management. And when my mother passed away, I was actually in my last semester of graduate school and I was doing all these different um, internships and I was working in all these different archives and libraries around like the greater Boston area and so when she died, and I got this box or this suitcase of stuff, like my first instinct was to like organize it into like Manila folders and label them and like put them in chronological order, um, because I was trying to detach myself from like the emotional component in in a way. I really was just trying to be like, well, here's this stuff, and like I have to deal with it. And so, how do I like put it somewhere? Until like my sis, because my sister Eileen, um, she wasn't able to make it down to Florida when my mom was in the hospital, and then she was supposed to come to Boston, and we were going to go through her things together, and then that trip kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and so that that idea that of preservation, um, like I had to, and it felt like I had to keep it in the state that it was in for as long as possible until my sister could be there with me to go through it. Um, and for a while that meant just leaving it in a suitcase in my living room. And then my roommates were like, you got to do something. with like, you can't just sit here in the living room forever. Um, <laughs> and they didn't use words. They just kept like moving it out of the way. But, um, but yeah, so that was initially how, how like that thread of like the archive came in because like it was my professional training It was what I thought I was going to be doing with my life. Um, And, and then those questions of like, like when I started processing it in, in the, the archival sense, I was like, this isn't a collection that would end up in some kind of institutional archive somewhere. It's, it's not something that would typically be collected. Like what did my mother do or accomplish that would make this, um, hold some kind of, of value to current or like you know like how archives and museums and historical societies, um, how they make decisions about what they collect, it's very political it's very and, and often um, it's late and they and they realize too late what communities, um, what people they should have been collecting or like collecting, um, records from. Um, and so now you see a lot of archives, um, doing projects where they're going back and trying to find collections from people from different like minority communities, or, uh, you have, um, like a bunch of like gender and sexuality archives starting up, like especially community archives. Um, You know, there are the way that women are represented in the archive has changed. And so um, that was always in the back of my mind, too. Like those those questions of, you know, like, what what am I doing this for? Who am I saving these things for? Like, am I going to have kids? Am I saving it for my sister's kids? Like, what 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 are what are my goals? What am I doing and why? Um, And those questions kind of guided me through some parts of the book as well.
1: So many of the chapter titles and the footnotes are actually comprised of lines from your mother's diary, um, of which you write, quote, I had hoped to find more heartfelt expressions of our mother's regrets, but I was forced to look for those sentiments between the written lines. So my question now is what was the process of incorporating these lines into the text for you? And what are some of the things that you learned about your mother through these sparse lines?
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, I, I think I'd like to read a, a, a short excerpt from the book. And this comes from a chapter. What is it called? I think it's called Pretty Little Thing. Um, yeah, Pretty Little Thing. And yeah, I'll just read it and then uh, and then I'll talk about it. But the way that it works is um, there are footnotes throughout the book. And it's often in, in those footnotes where I am... Yeah, writing out some of those lines from my mother's diary. The last time I talked to my mother, it was November. The sky cold, the trees bare. She was crying. She struggled to tell me that she found Ron, her ex-husband and sometimes boyfriend, dead. He had hung himself in the back of their bedroom door. And here is a footnote. I find no record of that day in my mother's diaries. At the beginning of November, she mentions a yard sale with Ron. On November 14, 2012, running out of money, call back to unemployment to make sure everything done. Ron and I are sick. Four beers left, so Ron let me drink it. On November 21, moving freezer food and canned goods out of house. On November 30, went to police department to get report of death for Ron. So, you know, this this person, her ex-husband, I had met him once and I didn't really know him, but they were together for, I'd say, like 10 years on and off. Um, And when she when he died, you know, oh, maybe I'll just read like this. The section that immediately follows that footnote, too. Sure. Um, Because, like yeah, when she calls me like this is the conversation that we have about it. I stared at the sidewalk dotted with dirt encrusted gum. In one moment, I considered asking my mother to come stay with me in Boston, and in the next, anger chased the thought away. My mother only ever called me when she felt guilty about the distance between us, only ever called me when she needed reassurance, forgiveness. I told her I was sorry, an apology as hollow as her love felt to me. "'It's okay, baby,' she said, her voice suddenly dry." Mommy's friends are taking good care of me. That's good, I said. She told me she was back with Dale. He was grilling in their backyard. She told me they had a garden and they were trying to grow tomatoes and corn and beans. I responded in single syllables. She told me she loved me, then hung up. And so, you know, like that conversation that we had after, like, it, it would be so traumatic, like finding this person that you loved uh, in your, in your, bedroom. Um, But we didn't really, you know, we weren't in a in a position where we could really have those conversations with one another. And then, you know, she tells me like her friends are taking care of her, that she's okay, that she's with her, like Dale was her other boyfriend, that she go she sort of like went back and forth between Dale and Ron. Um, And I'm like, okay, great. That sounds great. Like you're, you're fine. And it isn't until after she passed away that I realized that she wasn't, she, after Ron died, she stayed with Dale for a little bit, and then she was homeless. Um, she was living uh, in a park uh, in Lake Worth um, before she passed away. And so like going back here in this moment and like, going into her diaries, even, you, you know, you find sort of like, she's not talking about what she's feeling. She's not reconciling with his death in any way. Um, She's she's talking about um, like a going to a yard sale, and then like they they're running out of money, and that was that was ultimately why he ended his life was because he had a problem with gambling and was in debt and like didn't know what to do about it, and so you see some of that like running up to it where they're out of money and they're rationing beer, and you know like she has to like clean his room, shows she's like moving freezer food and canned goods out of his house. She's like filing a report of death for him. But like it's in sort of like the absence of her emotionally, like trying to like reconcile with this or deal with it, or even, you know, in the privacy of her own diary, write out some of what she's feeling about this loss. Um, Like she didn't have the... I don't like emotional tools. Like she didn't have people she could talk to or like a safe space she could go or a way of like working through something like this. You know, she, she drank. Um, And that was, that was her escape. That was her solution.
1: Um, And ultimately it was, it was what killed her. Thank you, Danielle. That was a powerful section that you read. Um, So so a couple of questions. The, the next one is, so you mentioned your sister, Eileen, and Eileen is quite a, uh, a prominent primary character in the memoir. Yes. And one recurring tension throughout is your relationship with her, um, who others often compare unfavorably to your mother. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about your sister and in what ways the two of you are different despite being raised in largely similar circumstances?
0: Yeah. Uh, growing up, um, growing up, we were always really different. Uh, you know, like I'm quiet. I avoid conflict. <laughs> um, like I'm, I'm, always, I was always trying to, to do what I felt like was the right thing. I was trying to behave. I wanted to be good. I wanted to get good grades. Um, and I was, I was always trying to like make people happy. Uh, and Eileen, growing up, um, she was a lot more volatile. Like she was angry. She would yell. Um, if she was unhappy, you would hear about it. Whereas I would just like <laughs> quietly sort of like put my head down and like carry on. Um, and so growing up, I was like, you know, she's difficult. Like she's angry. Like we, we grew up the same way. Like, why can't you just like, why can't you like I don't know, like stop being such a brat. Like I, and I would often call her that I, there was like one letter I think I included in the memoir where I, I'm like writing about her. And I'm like, I just call her the brat. <laughs> and, like there, and there was, there was this like narrative in the family that she was a brat and she was spoiled. Um, but it was, you know, as I started like working through this book and like working through my relationship, not only with my mother, but also with my sister, um, who then went on to, you know, at growing up, uh, she, you know, so she started like drinking, experimenting with drugs in middle school. Um, she was in and out of foster care. She was in and out of boot camp. Um, she was in and out of jail a couple, like just a couple of times, um, and was like struggling with addiction uh, for so much of her life, and and and. That that idea that I had that that it was it was because of who she was uh, stuck with me and and it really made it hard to maintain a relationship with her and I shut her out of my life and much more easily than I did my my dad or even my mom um, and it wasn't until I started working on this book that I realized the ways in which we were actually treated quite differently growing up. Um, and that it wasn't entirely her or her personality um, that that made her act out. She was acting out in response to the way she was treated by our parents, by my grandmother. Like she was the kicking dog. She was the one who took the brunt of frustrations. Um, I, there, there was a scene I, th- I include in the book where um my dad is drunk and he's gotten in a fight with one of his girlfriends and she's like run off with her two kids but as she was trying to leave my dad had tried to grab the keys out of her hand and my sister came up and like I'm like standing like in like in the yard just like ah ah what is going on (laughs) just sort of like quietly panicking and my sister runs up she's like she's in 7th she grade grabs my dad's arm and starts trying to like drag him away from this woman it was like let her go let her go it's like you know she 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 just um was like so brave <laughs> like i would never um but he turns around and he grabs her by the neck and he starts choking her in like the front yard um and after that you know deb drives off nobody calls the cops no one calls to check on my sister at all. Um, we're sitting in the kitchen and he points at her and he's like, I would never do that to your sister. And Mm -hmm. it like to hear that as a child, what do you do with that information? Like, um, and so she just grew up feeling like she wasn't loved. And, and that was why she was acting out.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. So another theme in the book um, with Eileen, with your father, with your mother, is is struggles with addiction and alcoholism. So you mentioned how your sister was uh, experimenting with drugs and alcohol from an early age. Um, Your father repeatedly, within the narrative, uh, tries and fails to sober up. And as you mentioned earlier in the interview, your mother actually dies while trying to quit. Mm -hmm. So growing up, your grandmother told you, when you were quite young, um, quote, you're an alcoholic, you just haven't had your first drink. So I'm wondering what was your relationship to addiction growing up and as an adult and how are you able to avoid the same patterns of, uh, alcohol and substance abuse?
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think honestly, like some of it was fear, like the fear that I mentioned earlier. Um, we did grow up, we, uh, We were baptized. We were raised Catholic. We went to Catholic school for a while when we were in Florida. Um, We had like Irish Catholic nuns, and like wore jumpsuits and everything. (laughs) It was, uh, and and they were very strict. Um, And and I think because I I avoid conflict, uh, I had a really hard time in that in that kind of environment. And I felt like I'd I'd be punished sort of like severely for things that didn't really make sense to me. Um, And so I, I kind of always feared, punishment or like judgment by God for a while I went through a, a, a phase where I was really scared about like what things God might judge me for and why and I I asked for like a catechism for Christmas one year like I wanted a Bible for Christmas like it was it was pretty intense and so I, I think some of it was fear some of it was like, not wanting to disappoint my family, feeling like uh, I had to be successful and I had to take care of everyone. And especially like seeing my sister from such a young age start going down the same path as my family um, or feeling like she was, uh, I, I felt even more the weight, sort of like the weight of expectation that I wouldn't. Um, and that became a lot more complicated the older I got. And when I was in college, especially I I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, and had depression. And uh, at that point, I was like on a couple of different medications that I was responding to really in a a bad way. Um, And when I would get manic, the only thing I found I could do at one point was just like drink a lot. It was like vodka and cranberry juice uh, was the only thing I could drink. Um, I think I'm allergic to beer, which also helps. Um, I couldn't actually, I can't drink beer without feeling very sick, Mm. which might be psychological. It might be physical. I'm not sure. Um, But I I think I do, you know, my, my family, I feel like I have this reputation in my family for being quite dark or for lingering on or thinking too much about things that I should put in the past or put behind me. But I think that uh, what I have gained from that kind of like dark way of thinking, according to them, is that I have a lot of introspection. Um, And so, you know, I was doing it. I knew what I was doing when I was doing it. I knew I was self-medicating. And for a while, I let myself get away with it. But I couldn't let myself get away with it for very long without really beating myself up. Um, and so I think rather than alcohol and and addiction, I think a lot of where I get my dopamine hits are from, um, uh, video games and I've, I've struggled with sort of like this video game addiction as an adult for a very long time. And it feels, it's like more acceptable. It destroys my, my life in like, it, it doesn't like destroy my life in, in some of the same ways. Um, and, but, but yeah, like I, I don't think I've entirely escaped or avoided some of these patterns. Mm -hmm. I've still created a situation for myself in which I, uh, I am isolated and escape from some of my problems. It's just that, uh, it's not quite a, a destructive way or in quite the same destructive way. Mm
1: -hmm. So throughout dog flowers, this is something I've been dying to ask you about. There's a strong... (laughs) There's a very strong and prominent bird motif, um, which begins in childhood when you witness a yellow bird get eaten by a cat. Mm. And you write of that time, uh, quote, I couldn't understand why the bird had flown so close to danger. Later in life, you become a bird watcher. So I'm wondering what are some of the varied significances of the many birds that appear in your memoir?
0: Yeah, <laughs> thanks for this question. It's, uh, it was kind of intimidating. One of my so I'm a faculty mentor at the Institute of American Indian Arts, um, and one of my students this semester, I, uh, really wanted to read my book. And I'm like, you should read it with someone else. Um, but she really wanted to read it this semester. Um, and so she had to write this craft paper about my book afterwards. And she actually wrote about the birds. And she tracked um, sort of like, when they appeared and why they appeared and how they changed over the course of the whole book. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I it's really weird for someone to do that kind of craft analysis um, on your book. And, and, you know, honestly, like she was bridging connections that um, I, I didn't understand quite so explicitly. Um, so I think people give a lot of credit to Leah Altman who <laughs> answered. I think this question of um, like, what, how, how are the birds working as as a motif for as, as an image. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that she said was that, um, it actually changes and, and that early on, like those early birds are like these fragile, delicate things. And, and in a way I am projecting myself into them. And so that very first little yellow bird, um, who, who did like, you know, it was a parakeet, Uh, I I kept its little feathers. And later when I owned parakeets, I recognized the barring on them and the shape of them. And it was was someone's pet that had escaped and was out living in in Florida. And when it saw me and my sister playing in this field, it was like, oh, person, I'm like hungry or like, you know, like I need help. And so it had flown down because it recognized like people and it didn't recognize cats. And so... Before either my sister or I could, like, help it, it, this cat pounced and, like, ran under the house with it, like, ran and under my house with it um, or my, my dad's house. Um, and, and, you know, what what Fran told me, what my stepmom told me in that moment was, like, it's just, like, what cats do because I had asked her, like, why did he do that? But I had been. I had been asking about the bird. Like, why, why did the bird, like, put itself in danger? And part of the problem was it just didn't recognize danger. It hadn't been raised to recognize danger or dangerous situations. Um, and growing up as a kid, it, it was much the same way for me. Like, I didn't I, – I was raised to normalize certain behaviors, and, um, certain kinds of relationships, like I didn't understand what like a healthy, supportive, loving, familial relationship looked like from my own family members. Um, and, and I was raised, uh, to put myself in like dangerous positions or like emotionally like dreaming positions, um, And it's taken a long time for me to, and not not only like recognize um, relationships and people that are bad for me, especially romantic. Like I've been in a lot of like bad romantic relationships, but then it's also been hard for me to like now not expect the worst from people. Um, So, you know, like I'm, I'm married. I've been with my husband since 2018 or we got married or anyway, we got married in 2018. And, and sometimes he'll say something or do something and, and I, I think I'm, I've become like really good at recognizing patterns of behavior and, and sometimes it works out for me and sometimes it doesn't. So he'll say something that like reminds you of my dad or like feels like something my dad would have said. And, and I'm like, oh, so like, eh, and I'll jump on, I mean, I'll, I'll take it into like this really dark place. He's like, no, no, no. Like <laughs> that's not at all what I meant. Um, and so it's it's this, like, learning and unlearning process for me as an adult. Um, but as, as like, the birds go, you know, like, I had this bird, Barry, when I was in middle school, uh, which is another bird I write about. And my dad had this, like, philosophy, like, if you love something, you have to let it go. It has to be free. Um, and so he would, like, release my bird out. And i like, the bird's just going to – it's going to get eaten by a cat. <laughs> it can't survive out there. And I just, I, I gave my bird away because I, he wasn't safe in my home and I I wasn't safe in my home, but there was no one to give me away to. Like my grandma kept giving us back. It was crazy. Um, but, you know, as the book goes, uh, like these wild birds that I'm encountering, like that, that was actually, it's a place of peace that I found. Like watching these birds live their little lives, like totally apart from like, whatever chaotic thing is happening in my own there are like these little pockets of tranquility
1: Mm -hmm. for me. I love that. Um, So another, another huge theme in dog flowers or a huge um, event or uh, kind of like learning experience for you as the speaker is, so your mother is Navajo Mm. and you grew up largely disconnected in many ways to Navajo traditions and heritage and land. And after her death, you actually stay with your mother's family on the reservation, learn the language, learn the stories, take traditional weaving classes. So I'm curious about what it was like for you to reconnect with your mother's side of the family in this way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was really um, difficult. because you know going home going to my mother's home meeting my mother's family like there is this undeniable connection like my my cousin's sister my mom's sister's daughter um, she reminded me so much of my sisters and we like very naturally uh, started acting like sisters to each other like it was it, it was it felt Strange to meet this person for the first time in my whole life, and to feel that kind of love and connection and desire to protect her, like keep her safe. Um, it felt so strange to feel that so immediately with my with my cousin, um, and and like meeting my aunts and my grandmas and my grandpas. Like I I don't. I, like was i recognizing something of my mother you know like what 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 about it felt so much like home and felt so much like family and it's really hard um to put that into words but but at the same time i felt i also felt very outside of those relationships and very outside of that experience it's like i wasn't When I was there, it didn't feel like I was totally there. I I felt sort of outside myself watching it all happen. Um, Because, you know, like Navajo is a really hard language to learn. And I recognize some of the sounds in it now, but I don't, I can't speak it. And I I certainly um, am not conversational in it. And so when people would speak it around me, often I was like left out of those conversations or even just like, you know, like little cultural references or like ways of um, preparing food or like the kind of seasoning people use or what kind of cheese, you know, like all of those, all of those little things I was having to pick up. And I'm also, you know, just in general, like not very comfortable in those domestic spaces. Like I don't know how to cook. Like, you know, like there are a lot of things I, I feel like I'm not very good at. And so to move into that space as a woman and almost to to feel like expected, like I could start contributing, I could start help making like this big memorial dinner for my mom. I was like, boy, just, you know, I'm just like, okay, like I'll take the shells off of eggs. Like I'll peel some carrots. Like this is the extent of what I can do. Um, And so it was, I felt pulled in two very different directions there. Like one, like, oh, this family, and two, boy, do I, do I not know how to live inside this family, Um, and, and I think if my, and, and there was a lot in the way, right, like, my, my aunt um, was, like, drinking, she was very sad, she was having a really hard time of it, Um, and it, it was hard to uh, make space for, or invite, her totally into my life and to open myself up to uh, potentially a dynamic that felt similar to the dynamic with my mother, like to open up myself to that kind of heartbreak. And I I made a decision somewhere along the line that I just couldn't, like I couldn't do it. I had to take care of my sisters and I, yeah, I couldn't make room for that kind of relationship again Mm -hmm. right now anyway.
1: So then how did your understanding of, of who your mother was change after spending time with her side of the family, with her sisters and cousins? And ultimately, what did this journey teach you maybe about yourself as your mother's daughter?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that I I finally came to understand was the extent to which my mother was herself a caretaker. And that was a, a word that the priest when we were having a conversation about her memorial service, the priest came to that like, "Oh, she was a caretaker," because I, I mentioned that she'd like taken care of one of her boyfriends through his cancer diagnosis and, and things like that. Um, and and it felt like sharp and funny and not funny in a way because she had, you know, like it felt like she hadn't taken care of me. She hadn't taken care of my sisters, like my my three other sisters, but she was like, and and it's weird that. When she made when I made decisions about who to cut off, they were, they're different from the decisions that that my mother made. Um, her decision was that she was going to cut herself off from her daughters um, and and why she made like why she made that decision was one of the things that I began to understand. And the, the ways that in which she had overextended herself and our similarity in that way, you know, I spent so much of my adult life trying to take care of my dad and trying to take care of some of these, like, <laughs> I don't know, like men who are also children who were, like, depressed or, like, didn't know what to do with their lives or you know, whatever. Like, we've had a lot of those kinds of, I'm sure, like, people in general have been in a lot of those kinds of relationships. But, like, I, I started to recognize all the ways in which I was, like engaging in these unhealthy romantic relationships that my mother had been engaging in her whole life and how it was just an extension or a continuation of the ways in which we had been conditioned by our families. Like you're a woman, you will take care of like these people because that is your, that is your job. That is like ultimately like your purpose in life. Um, and she never escaped that. She never got out from under that. And, um, there was this man who knew my family very well. He basically he he wasn't in our family, but he like spent a lot of time in their home when he was younger. And he wrote me a let a couple of emails about my mom. But in them he he was like, you know, your mom like she loved school, she loved studying, she loved reading, she wanted to get an education, she wanted all of these things. And to see or to, you know, to have experienced how her life played out and all those things that she wanted that she didn't get to do. Um, it helped me understand sort of some of those patterns that I had fallen into and the changes that I would have to make to do the things that I wanted to do and also to, like, preserve my own
1: sanity and health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So I just have one one last quick question for you, and that yeah. is... What, what are you most hoping that readers will come away from Dog Flowers understanding better about families, about who we are and where we come from?
0: Yeah, um, you know, I think for especially for people who are growing up in, in families that are like mine, um, it can feel like we don't have a choice about who our family is and what our connection to them is. And and it feels obvious now, like standing outside of it, that I didn't have to take me you know, like I didn't have to take care of my dad. I didn't have to keep letting him disrupt my life, and I could put boundaries between us in ways that I hadn't been taught to do. But when I was in it, it didn't it didn't feel like a choice, and I was told, you know, like. But like the things that I was told, the the behaviors that were modeled, um, what what I was raised to believe was important, all of those things made it feel like it wasn't a choice, and that I was in it, and that I was just going to have to figure out a way a way to make it work. Um, I was going to figure out how to support my my <laughs> like middle aged alcoholic father for the rest of my life, or the rest of his life, I should say. Um, but, but it is, it is, it's a, it's a choice. And my grandmother, my, my dad's mom enabled him. She enabled him his whole life. And, and there's a difference between care and compassion and enabling. And that's a, that's a line that I've had to learn how to walk. Um, and so with my sister, you know, she is, is sober now. She's clean now. And we have a, a really, uh, I'm gonna say like great relationship though, like it's it's just getting better, you know. Like we uh text each other pictures of our gardens. Um, we like <laughs> she mailed me seeds to put in the ground this spring, and um, you know, like and it's, and it's so much better than it was, but we're still learning like how to talk to each other. But but that kind of love, like between us, like it it is work and it's worth it. And you know, like. Yeah.
1: All of those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you. That's great news about Eileen as well.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so Danielle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for these thoughtful answers to the questions and for being with us here today. Yeah, no, they were great questions. Thank you. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Danielle Geller, author of Dog Flowers, a memoir on New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.